We're going to be starting this morning with uh, verse 9 and moving through verse 12, possibly verse 13. So hopefully we'll gain a little ground today. We just finished up tracing the spirit of Babylon down through the ages, the world system, the doom of which is announced there in verse 8. And we looked at God's witness, all the way back to the days of Adam, up to the flood, subsequent to the flood, down to Abraham, and God's plan and purpose through the people of Israel to raise up a nation in a sea of nations that had been scattered at the Tower of Babel. And then we looked at the church. When Israel failed to fulfill its witness, God raised up the church to provoke them to jealousy. And then all the way down to the point where this corrupt world system that we see manifested today all around us, globalism, ultimately comes to its end. It comes to its end suddenly. And there's an announcement here thereof. We're in a what's called a victory campaign, a great parenthesis that starts back with the wonders that John sees in heaven in chapter 12, the dragon and the woman and Messiah. And we're in this... Age-old conflict is being emphasized between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman and the people of Israel. And we looked at a heavenly campaign with Michael and his arc and the ar- Michael the archangel and his angels and the dragon being cast out of heaven. The earthly campaign involving the dragon's general, the Antichrist, and his minister of propaganda, the false prophet. And now we're in the victory campaign. And in this victory campaign, it's portrayed to us kind of like the snapshot we have surrounding World War II. When we think about World War II, it was much more complex, much more detailed than is often summarized in the history books. But when we think of the victory that the Allies had over Nazi Germany and Japan, there are certain images that immediately come to mind. A snapshot of victory. And that's what we see here in chapter 14. The victory doesn't actually occur until the the vials are poured out and Armageddon, but we're given snapshots, looking back before it's ever transpired, snapshots of victory. The first one is, uh, the first five verses is a snapshot of assembly, and I compared that to this photo of victory we associate with World War II, the uh, hoisting of the United States flag on Mount Suribachi on Iwo Jima. We often associate that with victory in the war in the Pacific Theater, and of course, the snapshot of assembly we see in Revelation 14 more closely assemble, uh, resembles this assembly that took place a few moments after that first picture. And then we got into a snapshot of judgment. That's what we're in now, verses 6 through 12. And when we think about judgment upon Nazi Germany, we often associate it with this picture uh, on D-Day, the beaches of Normandy, when the Allied troops are coming ashore. Now, the war drug on after that. There were many casualties after that. But this was the beginning of the end. And when we see this snapshot, we know that the Allies were victorious. So we're still in this snapshot of judgment made up of three angelic messengers. We have one that announces the judgment itself, the everlasting gospel, one of the forms of the good news in the New Testament that God is creator and He's coming to judge. For the righteous, that's good news. It's not something we should be afraid of. It's not something we should fail to preach. It's not something that we should sweep under the rug because we know we have family members that have split hell wide open and are going there. 
shouldn't sleep with another. It's good news. Whether or not we have family going to hell or not, it's good news. So we have this announcement of judgment. And then we just got into the announcement of doom upon Babylon, a snapshot of judgment. Babylon is the world system. It's doomed. The judgment is announced, and then it's announced upon the system, or what I call, what the, what the old Soviet used to refer to as the Politburo, the system that governs everything. Babylon here is the Politburo. Bureau. And now moving into verse 9, we have the judgment pronounced not just upon the system, but upon the individuals, the people that are governed by the system. What they used to call in the old Roman Empire, the proletariat. This is the judgment upon not just the system, my friends, but upon the individuals governed by the system. You know, the system is wicked and corrupt, but so are those governed by it. And the only reason we have wicked men in positions of power, the Bible says, the only reason why the vilest of men are exalted in the system is because the wicked walk on every side. The Bible says in Proverbs, the wicked walk on every side when the vilest of men are exalted. You want to know why vile people are in positions of authority? Because it's wicked people that put them there. So this judgment, this snapshot of judgment that's proclaimed this everlasting gospel isn't just upon a system. Something that's intangible or inanimate or just spiritual. It's upon people, individuals, the proletariat itself. And that's what we see here in verse 9 with this third angelic messenger. The first one proclaims the everlasting gospel, the judgment. The second one announces judgment upon the Politburo, the system. And then this third one follows one right after another, boom, 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 and announces judgment upon the individuals governed by this system, the last form thereof. So I'm going to start with verse 9. And the third angel followed them, that is the other two angelic messengers, saying with a loud voice, not whispering it, not beating around the bush, declaring it loudly, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image. And whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Put the box of colored pencils away, please. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. Amen. An announcement of doom against those who worship the beast and receive His image. There's something made very plain here in verse 9 that in the tribulation period, we've already talked about this, receiving the mark is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. And it doesn't matter what motivates you to receive it. Fear is not an excuse for betraying 
the Son of God. Fear is not an excuse for betraying the truth. To receive the mark of the beast is to worship the beast and his image. And for the worship of Antichrist, the son of perdition, is to go into perdition. There is no salvation from that. There is no excuse for betraying the truth. It says here, if any man worship the beast. This is one rule for all. The Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't alter His opinion or His judgment based upon how much money someone has, based upon how much influence and authority they have. God judges kings and paupers by the same standard. Being rich doesn't guarantee you leniency. Neither does being poor. God has one standard. And this one standard is applied to all men. You receive the mark, you receive the wrath of God. Plain and simple. That's why these novels that are written about the end, end times and the, the uh, Left Behind series and all that, they want to present these characters that they get the mark and then they, they start thinking that they've made a mistake and they wake up and realize who the Antichrist is and then they it's implied that they escape and they have salvation. Well, that's not biblical. That's false. It's a subtle falsity. There's a lot of subtle falsities that come out all the time where we look at these movies or these devotionals and we overlook the subtle things and think, well, that's not a big deal. Look at the good things they're saying. It's the subtle falsities that are dangerous. And if somebody will change the Scriptures where it's so clear, you better be careful. You better be careful. Lots of subtle falsities that deceive Christians because they don't know the Word of God. There was a real popular song uh, that was, I think it was written by Michael Jackson back in the 1980s and everybody got together and raised money for the starving kids in Africa and had their big concerts and all got together and sung about we are the world, we are the children, let's give. And it sounded so good. And we were attending a Christian school and occasionally, the, our school choir would sing during the weekly church service at the Lutheran church there in Conover. And when we would do that, we would come to that church that day to participate. Well, there was one particular Sunday when the choir was going to sing that song for a church service. Our school choir and my parents wouldn't allow us to be a part of that. And they wouldn't allow us to be a part of that because that song contained a very subtle lie and deception. In one of the verses, it compared the giving of food to starving people to God when He turned stones to bread. And people think, oh, how nice. No. If you know the Scriptures, it was the evil one in the wilderness who tempted the Son of God to turn the stones to bread. And what did Jesus reply? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus was tempted by the evil one with the lust of the flesh, and he didn't give in. To say that he turned the stones to bread in that instance is blasphemy. And people were so caught up in the emotion they couldn't even see it. At the time, I didn't understand. But my parents wouldn't let us participate. And I look back and thank God for that. It's time to wake up to the falsities. Half of the stuff that's in television, half of the stuff that's in the newspaper is designed to dumb you down. 
It's designed to numb you like zombies and it's designed to deceive you. You've got to understand it for what it is. And there is no salvation from the world system. I don't care what someone's excuse is. Fear of death is not an excuse when it comes to God here. Turn to Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. This is a well-known passage that's often used when preaching the gospel. And it talks about eternal damnation. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What's interesting to me is the very first category of people listed here. Not murderers, not whoremongers, but the fearful. That word means cowards. The cowards who are afraid of man are the first that get cast. So don't tell me you've got an excuse for receiving the mark of the beast. The people teach that junk nowadays or imply it because they're all about dumbing down hell. They're all about renovating hell. All about installing some AC and some ceiling fans. The only people interested in remodeling hell are the ones that are getting ready to move in. And they're going to find there is no remodeling. But cowardice is a sin. And we've been called to be other than that. The opposite of cowardice is not a bull in a china shop. The opposite of cowardice is not just opening your mouth and making your opinion known and fighting and getting your way. That's not the opposite of cowardice. The opposite of cowardice is standing upon truth and refusing to budge, just like our Lord did. But our Lord didn't go out into the streets and scream and holler like a madman. Our Lord preached with authority, and He did it graciously. And both of those things is, are what caused the people to wonder and be astonished at His doctrine. He was the opposite of cowardice. And that's what we're called to be. Those that receive the mark, some will love the beast, some will believe he's the, the Christ, some will be all about furthering a system and many will do it because they're afraid. The same reason why these people in offices that get the letters from the anti-God lawyers, uh, trial lawyers to tell them they can't say God's name or they can't do this or they can't have a prayer on the wall, it's, they immediately take it down and succumb to some threatening letter. And it's any, it's any surprise that people would take the mark? That fear, that cowardice won't be an excuse. If any man receives this mark, it's over, it's finished. That ought to compel us to go out and preach the gospel now that people can escape having to make that terrible choice. It's a sin to fear man. It's a sin. It's a sin to fear man. We're to fear God. It's a sin to worry and trifle about things. That's what Jesus said. If Jesus said, don't be anxious, it means to be anxious is to disobey Him, and that's a sin. It's a sin to fear man. We all struggle with it. We all do it. But let's quit making excuses and call it what it is. It's wrong. We ought not fear man. It's a fear of man that will drive people to receive this mark in their forehead or in their right hand. And once that's done, it's too late. There is no salvation. It's over. It says here that if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark, the worship and the receiving of the mark 
are intertwined. We saw this back in chapter 13 when that mark is introduced and the beast is described. It's an act of worship. Here it talks about being in the forehead or in the right hand. That's what it says in chapter uh, 13. If you go to chapter 20, it it talks about being in the right hand or upon the forehead. We talked about how this is not just something implanted. It's an implantation that's in, but it's also visible. It's also on the surface. It's not just something on the surface that can be cut off with a knife. It's in and on. And then remember how we compared it to the modern day biometric passports? How there's a visible symbol on the outside of that passport that indicates it's biometric? The chip, however, is inside. And you'd never know there was a chip or an electric wire in there unless you stuck that passport in a microwave. If you stick your passport in a microwave for two or three seconds, it'll catch fire. And when you take it out, you'll see the, you'll see the, uh, the shape of a chip and a wire puffed up on the back. It's in there. The mark is on it and in it. And it's kind of an interesting little representation of what I believe is being talked about. And then we looked at the actual Greek word in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, that uh, uh, is an abbreviated form of 666 and how it's the abbreviation for Christ with a serpent-like symbol in the middle of it. That's an interesting message I preached sometime back on the mark. You can go back and look at it yourself on the new website. And speaking of which... Speaking of past messages, today's actually a milestone in this study on the book of Revelation. Daddy doesn't get, Paul doesn't get to answer this. Who knows what this milestone is? Jason either, because he's back there shaking his head like he knows it. Be quiet. Let's see if somebody else... It's the hundredth. I, 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 I put it on Facebook. This is the hundredth message in this study. Can you believe that? What, message number 100. That was our, our goal at some point in the past, and... I thought maybe we'll have to work hard to get there, but we're still quite a, a ways from the end of the book. But this is a milestone. I don't know if this will be any more special than any of the other messages, but I am going to talk about something that preachers won't talk about today, so maybe that will make it stand out. But here we have a reference to a mark that's more than on, it's in, and later we discover it's also upon. Something can be upon and in at the same time. There's nothing wrong with the King James translation here. It's accurate. It's an implant signified by a visible symbol. And that's exactly what biometrics is today. That's exactly why, doesn't matter, a lot of these modern countries, doesn't matter who it is, you go in there, they swipe your passport on a machine and they have all the information about you. Lots of it. It's all there. Biometrics. Verse 10, if any man receive this mark, it's an act of worship, it's on the hand or in the forehead, what will happen to him? Verse 10, the same. The same as the any man of verse 9. Whoever has this mark, this is what's going to happen. Settled. There is no escape. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. You receive the mark, you worship the beast, you will suffer the wrath of God. The cup of God's wrath that was poured out upon Jesus Christ that He asked to be delivered from in the Garden of Gethsemane will be poured out upon you. Do you realize that what's being referenced here is the same cup that Jesus asked to be delivered from? 
The same cup that God poured out upon Him, do you realize that God poured His wrath out upon His Son? That's another doctrine that wants to get swept under the rug today because it shows us to be who we... It unmasked, that truth unmasks us. And it unmasks the world system. But the difference between those upon whom this cup will be poured out in Christ is Christ being 100% man, could, only a man could... So only a man could substitute for a man's crimes. But Christ was not just a man, He was God. And the eternal wrath of God's cup of indignation was poured about out upon Him. And because He was God, He could suffer that eternal wrath in a moment of time and He could survive. Unfortunately, like the Bible says in Psalms, you think you are gods, but you will die like men. The ones upon whom this wrath is poured are unlike Christ and that they won't survive. They can't suffer and pay for an eternal crime in a moment of time like God could do. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. This cup of the wine of God's wrath is poured out without mixture. It's very clear. What does that mean? It's 180 proof. It's not watered down. This is not like the coffee that's made over here every Sunday morning. And it's not a shot at, 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 at Ronnie or Debbie because they ain't even here today. It's just coffee made in normal coffee makers is watered down. I'm not into that. I like to make it on the stovetop with what we call a stovetop mocha. When you drink a coffee out of that, we usually will pour about half into the cup and then you kind of dilute it with steamed milk. But before you put the milk in there, that's coffee without mixture. You don't know what coffee is until you've had a straight-up espresso out of a really good machine. Talk about without mixture. That's a good analogy there. A lot of the wine and the beer that's mass-marketed in this country today is watered down. There's a distinct difference between beer and wine poured without mixture and that which is watered down. You might be able to throw down. I know no one in here does, but there's people out here that might be able to claim to throw down 10 Budweiser's or Bud Lights. You wouldn't throw down 10 real beers brewed without mixture. You wouldn't be able to throw down 10 of what they put on your table in a pub in Germany. I can tell you that because it's without mixture. God's wine of His wrath is 180 proof. Just like that, what we pour out of that mocha uh, coffee maker on the stovetop as compared to what is a typical coffee maker. The cup of His indignation. Let's look at a couple of passages here. We're going to go back to the Old Testament because this cup is referenced numerous times in the Bible. Daniel, if you'll read Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17. Gene, Isaiah 51, verses 17 and verses 22 and 23. Yeah. Yes. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to drink 
or I'm sorry, cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then took I the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me. This cup of the wine of God's wrath is prepared for nations. And nations will drink it. Now if you go on to read the rest of this chapter, this telescopes into the days we're talking about. This telescopes prophetically into an ultimate fulfillment that comes when God gathers the nations at Armageddon, when He has a controversy with the nations. And He'll give them that are wicked to the sword. If you go and look at the, the nations He talks about, He starts with Jerusalem and Judah, who ought to know better. That wrath is going to be poured out upon them. We know in Zechariah that two-thirds of those living in the land in the time of Jacob's trouble will be destroyed. Only a third, a remnant of a third will be saved. It goes down, it talks about um, Egypt and his servants, the mingled people, all the mixed-race peoples of the, the Middle East, Edom and Moab, the children of Ammon. You know, that goes out of uh, uh, people living in land that really belongs... Uh, to Israel on the east side of the Jordan River. We've got Tyre and Sidon, the kings of the isles beyond the sea. Anytime we see this reference to the isles beyond the sea, that's talking about us. It's talking about North and South America, the distant peoples. Our nation's going to drink of that wrath of God. The kings of Arabia, Dedan and Tema and Booz, that's all going out into the Orient, east of there. Okay, All those that dwell in the desert, the Medes, that goes up into Iran and Iraq. All the kings of the north, far and near, up into Europe and Russia, the remote corners, one with another. All the kingdoms of the world which are upon the face of the earth shall drink. This cup of God's wrath is prepared for nations. And no one escapes. The United States of America included. It's a cup of His indignation. It's kind of interesting if you look at verse 16 because there's reference made to a sword and the sword making people mad or insane. It kind of reminds me of how God's Word is described in the New Testament. It's the sword of the Spirit. The sword, the double-edged sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ when He returns. And it made me think of something. You mess with God's sword, you mess with His book, He'll mess with your mind. He'll mess with your mind. Some of these people that won't preach the whole counsel of God's Word, some of these people that latch on to these doctrines that are a result of twisting Scripture or ignoring clear Scripture like the eternality of hell, their mind gets messed up to where they're totally confused and couldn't find their way out of a cardboard box. There's a lot of people in this country today who are mad with confusion because they messed with God's book and he messed with their mind. God is not the author of confusion in the churches. That is, in the genuine local churches that represent the redeemed body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a lot out here that calls itself a church that's not a church according to the definition of God in the Bible. God is not the author of confusion in the churches and amongst genuine born-again believers, but when it comes to the wicked and the ones that mess with His Word, 
That confusion of face is a judgment that comes from God. It's authorized by God and it's carried out by the devil. You mess with the book, God will mess with your mind. Be careful. Some of the interpretations that people use to argue for annihilationalism and there is no hell, it's just... People are strange. But you mess with the book, God messes with your mind. Make you mad. It's true. Look at Isaiah 51, Brother Gene. Verse 17, yes. Okay, here we have the Lord referring to this cup of His wrath, this cup of trembling that will be poured out upon Israel and Jerusalem. But there comes a time when that wrath is finished. A time of Jacob's trouble, the cup is poured out, but there comes a point when that's over. And Israel wakes up. And those that remain will call for their Messiah and He will come. And all Israel living or remaining at that time will be saved. And when that is over, that cup of trembling, that cup of God's wrath is finished for Israel. God takes it and He pours the dregs. You know, when you got, when you got wine without mixture, if you got real good strong coffee that's made over a, a stovetop, what's at the bottom of that cup? The real, the dregs. There's solid stuff at the bottom of a cup of wine that's without mixture. There's solid stuff at the cup of a, a coffee, the way the Israelis make it on a little stove top. The stuff at the bottom, the dregs, that's going to go upon the nations that have come against Israel. So the dregs of that cup are reserved for the nations that come against um, uh, the people of Israel, those that afflict them in the last days. So, not, the fury is bad enough, but the dregs at the bottom of the cup are even worse. So again, we see that this cup of God's indignation is reserved for nations. Nations that include Israel, but at some point, the dregs are reserved for those nations that come against the people of Israel. God has mercy upon them that He might fulfill His promises to the fathers. So we have nations as the object of this cup of God's wrath. In Revelation 14, we have individuals that are the recipient or, or they're the ones that receive this cup of His indignation. Nations and people. But that's not all. There's one more party who's privy to this cup. Let's read a couple of passages. Brother Bob, if you'll read Matthew 26, 38 through 42. And for sake of emphasis, we'll just go through the synoptic Gospels here. Brother Eric, Mark 14, 35 through 36. And Jason, if you'll read Luke 22, 41 through 44.
This cup is not just reserved for nations and for people. It was reserved for one, a third party. Matthew 26, 38 through 42. This is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus asked the Lord, His Father, to take it from Him the first time. He goes back and finds His disciples sleeping. He tells them to watch and pray. The flesh is, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We know that. Our spirit's willing. We know what's right oftentimes. It's what we want to do, but our flesh is weak. There's a lot we could learn from this interchange. But when Christ goes back the second time, there's a willingness there that you don't see in the first prayer. He acknowledges that if this cup may not be taken away from it except I drink it, thy will be done. He asked the Father to take it away the first time. But the second time He says, if it can't be taken away, if I must do this, thy will be done. Christ was resolved to drink this cup of God's wrath if it was necessary. And it was necessary. It was necessary that the righteous wrath of a holy God upon sin be appeased. That God might be true and every man a liar. Sometimes we're in positions of authority and we can make decisions because we have the authority to do so. But to make that decision compromises the greater good. To make that decision, though we have the authority to do it, would compromise what we're trying to accomplish. And I wish more people would realize that and follow Jesus' example. Jesus had all the power and authority to set this cup aside. But He chose to drink it. That it, ha it had to be done. God could have changed the rules if He wanted to. But to have done so would have rendered Him inconsistent. It would have rendered him less than true, less than faithful. And those things were of more importance. Mark 14, 35-36. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Jesus said, you can do anything, God. All things are possible. If it's possible, take away this cup. Oh, it was possible. But just because something's possible doesn't mean God will do it. Doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's fruitful. We want the good things that are possible now instead of willing to wait and suffer 
that we might attain something in the long run that's far better. You know, oftentimes I'll see this in martial arts circles where people desire and covet a ranking and they're willing to do anything to get it at that moment. And as a result, the art itself is compromised. And that compromise can never be fixed. Instead of waiting and considering the art of more importance than the rank and waiting for the rank to come in due time to where the art hadn't been compromised. We see this garbage all the time and it always boils down to men's egos. But not so with Christ. With God all things were possible. He could have made any excuse He wanted to make he would have been obligated to accept it because who are we, the, 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 the pot, who are we to say the one that made us? But God's consistent. God does what's right. He doesn't make His decisions based upon what people think or what's, what feels good or what's easy. He's consistent. And Jesus Christ understood that. He prayed, but He accepted the fact that what He desired was not the answer to His prayer. And he drank the cup of God's wrath. Luke chapter 22. It's good to read these different accounts in the synoptics. They highlight different aspects of God's character and the, and the, the actual event. Don't contradict each other. Some focus on some details, others don't. Jesus asked the Lord, the Heavenly Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. These people out here that talk about you can have anything you want, you can prosper any way you want, you just got to have the faith, you just got to ask God for it, and He's bound to do it. That's not the prayers of Jesus, that's false. That prosperity garbage on television. A lot of these people running around out here that don't teach that there's a literal kingdom coming. They teach that at Re Revelation's in the past. The church has replaced Israel. All this theonomous doctrine where we've got to take over the government and usher in righteousness and everything's getting better. That's prosperity teaching too. They're prosperity teachers leading people astray as well. You mess with God's Word, it'll mess with your mind. But that doesn't model the prayer of Christ. Christ was a willing to accept the will of the Father. Even if it's not what he prayed for. That's the model. And Christ was only a stone's cast away from his disciples. He didn't walk off to where he couldn't be seen. And his example should have motivated them to watch and pray after that manner, but they fell asleep. And Christ was in such agony that his sweat was as if he was bleeding. It doesn't say the sweat was actually blood. It, it was coming out like blood does. Blood, when you've got a, a cut on your face, I mean, if you shave and cut yourself real good, it won't stop. His sweat wasn't, wouldn't stop. It doesn't say here that it was blood. Maybe it was, maybe it wouldn't. Under, under stress, your capillaries can burst and blood can come out. But regardless, he was under agony in this prayer. He knew what it meant to drink the cup of God's wrath. 
You see, it wasn't enough for Christ just to die. He could have died in a number of ways. If they would have followed the Jewish law, they would have taken Him out and stoned Him. And the stoning, though somewhat painful, ended quite quickly. All it took was a big, huge, heavy rock to the head and you were done. So, I mean, Christ could have died. It wasn't enough for Him just to die. He had to suffer the wrath of God. And the crucifixion was a curse. To be hung on the tree was a curse according to the Jewish law. Not just to be hung on a tree. Not just to be physically tortured. Not just to have your beard ripped out and the flesh flayed from your back. But to be put on public display. It was more than physical wrath. It was emotional. It was to be put on display in shame. And to call for God in the presence of all these witnesses and to have God not answer you. It was the wrath of God. When Jesus cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, He cried for God who had forsaken Him. We may not be able to comprehend exactly how God the Father could forsake God the Son and how could God die and the universe stay together. And Because we can't comprehend it, we're just going to deny it. How arrogant. The essence of faith is taking God at His Word, even though we can't understand exactly what that means. What we know for sure is that Christ suffered the wrath of God and God turned His back on His Son. And part of that wrath was the public shame of being forsaken and to hang there in the sun. Jesus Christ suffered and satisfied the wrath of Almighty God. He drank the cup that was appointed for nations, wicked nations, and wicked individuals. Christ took it and drank it so we could escape the cup that's coming. That same cup is what Christ prayed to be taken from Him. When we refer to Christ's death and His atonement as a propitiation, that's a big word we say, see there in the Bible. He's the propitiation for our sins. That's what it says in 1 John. That's referring to the fact that Christ satisfied the wrath of God. He satisfied the payment. He wasn't paying the devil, my friends. He paid the price of sins to the author of creation. When we say Christ was a propitiation, that means He satisfied the demands of God, the wrath of God. There's a lot of people who don't want to even talk about that. There are people that claim to be Christian who deny that there was any appeasement of God's wrath involved in the atonement. They want to emphasize that His death was an example to us. His death was a substitution for us. But God forbid they talk about the propitiation. The propitiation was the most important part. If Christ couldn't have satisfied the wrath of God, then He could have died a hundred times in our place and it would have done no good. If Christ hadn't been God Himself, His death in our place as an example would have done nothing. And if there was no propitiation involved and He just died and stayed dead, we of all men are most miserable. It's the propitiation that brought about the resurrection. The resurrection proved that God accepted that payment. That God's wrath was appeased. That's why Christ rose from the dead. It's a proof. Yes, Jesus Christ is an example. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2 that Christ suffered... 
leaving us an example that we should walk in His footsteps. There's an element in which we should be willing to suffer for the truth, for the greater good. In fact, if you look at that passage in 1 Peter 2.21, it says this exactly. For even hereunto were you called that Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. It's His suffering that's the example, not the death. And we want to talk about, oh, His death was an example. No, His suffering was an example. Are you willing to suffer for the Gospel? You want to suffer? Are you willing to suffer? There was more to the death. I mean, a lot, anybody can die. Anybody can put a gun to their head and blow their head off like the mayor of Hickory did to end all his suffering, or so he thought. People can die in pretty serene ways where there is very little suffering. Where it happens so fast you don't know what hits you. But the example wasn't the death, it was the suffering that's left. Are we willing to suffer like He did? Are we willing to drink a cup of suffering that others might be saved? That we might not bring reproach on our Lord's name? So yes, there's an element there of an example. Christ is also a substitution in our place. Absolutely, a substitutionary sacrifice. If He wasn't a perfect substitution... It couldn't have been in our place. 1 John 3.16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. He was a substitute for us. But why is John even making this point? Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Are we willing to be a substitute for a brother and sister in Christ when it comes to death? Christ was for us. Are we willing to be that? That's not talking about laying our lives down for homosexuals and murderers and whoremongers and the wicked. The brethren. There are people out here that call themselves Christian who will make every excuse in the world for homosexual perverts and trannies and all these people that reject God and His revelation. But they won't give their brother and sister in Christ one ounce of a benefit of the doubt in anything. They'll just get mad and pick up their ball and go home. And then they'll virtue signal and virtue posture on Facebook to tell everybody how moral they are. Wicked. Because Christ laid down His life for us, we ought to be willing to lay our life down for the brethren, a genuine brother or sister in Christ whom we may not agree with about everything. That's the element of substitution there and what it ought to motivate us to do. But let us not forget there was also a satisfaction of God's wrath. Christ drank the cup that will be poured out upon nations and individuals who reject the shadow that comes with the wings of Christ. Keeping this in mind as far as Christ drinking that cup, and because He drank it, our our repentance and faith in Him can be our escape from that cup. Keeping all that in mind, turn to Hebrews 10. This is one of those chapters that people often read and teach that you can lose, that a Bible-believing Christian who's part of the New Testament church can lose his salvation. Oftentimes it's forgotten the context of this book, who the primary recipients are. They can't even see it. It's right there in the title. This was a book written to Jews. And I believe prophetically it's specifically written 
to Jews that are alive during the time of Jacob's trouble. It was given long ago. The canon was sealed. But where this book is going to have the biggest impact is upon those Jews here when the church is gone and this false Messiah has come. Just like a lot of the Psalms describe prophetically the experiences of God's remnant in the tribulation that are left behind, the, uh, the, Jews, the Jewish witnesses that wake up. That doesn't mean it's not applicable. Of course it's applicable. It declares eternal truth, the truths of Christ and Him being a high priest and all of these things. But we can't neglect the original specific audience. Jews who in Paul's day were wrestling between following Christ but continuing with the old sacrificial system. And then Jews in the future days who will wrestle with what they have learned about Messiah and the temptation to receive the mark and be a part of the false Messiah and the false religious system. It's a choice that will have to be made. There's some context here we ought to remember when studying Hebrews. Some great truths there that are applicable to us even as Christians. But look at verse 26 through 31. And I want you to keep the context of the cup of God's wrath. And I want you to keep the context of what's pronounced against those who receive the mark in Revelation 14 when we read this. And that the fact that this is being written to Jews. For if we sin willfully, we, Paul the author here, there's things in here that are very Pauline. There's no doubt in my mind that Paul was the author. This book may have been written when he was in the deserts of Arabia, uh, when the Lord was teaching him. Uh, before his first missionary journey, he went into Arabia for some time. He tells us in Galatians, this may have been one of the first books he wrote. Uh, or at least the first part of it, and then finished later. Chapter 13 seems to almost be as if it was written later. Something he started working on and finally put it... I don't know. It's in God's book. God's the author. Whoever wrote it was inspired by God. I believe it was Paul. If we sin willfully, the we is referring to us here, Jews. Because it's written to the Hebrews. If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. In other words, if you've been given the truth and you turn away from it, there is no other sacrifice. So you can do your religion, you can take your offering to the temple, you can do all this stuff, but there is no other sacrifice. There, there is no more sacrifice. It's either Christ or it's judgment. So you know the truth. If you keep going and doing the religion and keep bringing the sacrifices, it can't help you. There is no other sacrifice that remains for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. That's exactly what's described in Isaiah and Jeremiah in terms of the cup of God's wrath. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. For those that know the truth and take that mark, they're, they're trotting Jesus Christ underfoot, and there is no escape. In, in Paul's day, those that knew the truth, but said it's not good enough, I've still got to go and take 
the, the, the sacrifice to the temple. They don't trust in the blood of Christ. It's being trodden under their feet. For all of us that know the truth, but it's not good enough. we got to put our trust and strive in our church attendance and our uh, virtue posturing on Facebook and our tolerance of the wicked. You trot underfoot the Son of God. You claim to trust in the blood of Christ, but you think you have to eat the wafer and take part in the Roman Catholic unholy Mass of the Eucharist. Because the truth is not good enough. You trot. Every time the Eucharist is, is paraded down the aisle in a Catholic church, the Son of God is trodden underfoot. They actually believe that cookie is God, that wafer is God. So if it fall, a crumb falls on the ground and a rat, rat eats it, then a rat's actually eating the body of Christ. Strange people. Strange things. And then it talks about the vengeance of God. Then go down to verse 39. Here's what's interesting and I think ties it to this time of Jacob's trouble prophetically. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition. Okay? Paul's describing if we know the truth and we reject it, then there's no escape. God's judgment comes. But the ones he's writing to, he is convinced. But we're not like that. We're not Jews like that. We're not of those that draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. That word perdition in the New Testament is associated with Antichrist. Judas is called the son of perdition. When he dies, it says he goes to his own place as if he's prepared for some future purpose. We've talked about that. Antichrist is the son of perdition. That word perdition is associated with the false Messiah. Prophetically, what's being written here is to remnant Jewish witnesses who are facing the sufferings that come with refusing the mark and standing for the truth and it's being said, but we're not those that draw back into perdition and receive this mark, but believe and endure to the end to the saving of the soul. Now obviously that has application. True believers aren't drawn back into perdition. They don't forsake the Lord. I was looking on some article online this week, and you can go down and look at the comments. and You see people's comments on online articles, and you just wonder, is anybody working anymore? Does anybody have a job? I mean, some of the stupidest things you'll ever see. It's reactionary. Trolls. I had some guy... I guess people can friend you on Facebook now without accepting a friend request. Some guy came on my account this week. He says he's from Hickory, and he lives in Asheville. I have no idea who he is. And he came on my page and made some comment about uh, the fact that I would say something positive about the Russians and call myself a Christian was disgusting to him and that I needed to quit believing all the lies that the, that the right-wingers have said about Obama, implying that President Obama is a, a good man. And I'm like thinking, do I know you? I mean, who are you? And so I go to the guy's page and I just see on his page that he's been off of Facebook for four years. He came back on like two days before he posted on my site. So the guy's not even been on Facebook. I've not accepted any friend requests from anyone. I don't accept friend requests from people I don't know. 
So I don't know how in the world he got involved, but I guess people can do whatever they want. And I just told the guy, look, um, what's it to you? I don't know who you are. And the uh, best thing you can do is quit trolling other people's Facebook pages after you've just gotten back on from four years of absence. You must not have learned anything. Now go on, get! And I blocked him. Who are these people? That's all they know how to do is troll. The, when, when, when the president sends out a tweet, and whether you like it or not, I immediately get an alert on my phone and when it goes out, it instantly pops up. And instantly I go and look at it and there's hundreds of negative comments immediately on there talking about what a wicked person he is. Come on. It's fake. It's, it's called a bot. It's bots that go on and automatically are triggered. And everybody just believes it's truth. But some of these comments are just ridiculous. And I was reading something this week and some guy on there was like, look, I need somebody to help me out. I've been a Christian all my life, but I just can't take all this negative stuff anymore. You know, everybody's suffering. The world is so bad. I, I, I just really think that I'm going to denounce my faith in, in God and become an atheist. And if you want to, you, you know, if you want to help me and keep me from doing this, then, then please help me and contact me. But I just can't take it anymore. Everything's so bad. I wanted to say the best thing you can do is renounce your faith. Go on. Get. Go ahead. Do it. You don't even know what suffering is. And you're going, you're going to walk away from God because you've got it so bad? That's the type of people that Hebrews is being written about. They don't know the first thing about genuine salvation. In Hebrews chapter 6, Paul warns about those who taste of the things of God, but yet turn away from it. You've got to keep reading to verse 9 because in verse 9 he says, but I'm convinced better things of you all, things that accompany salvation, though I'm speaking like this. So salvation is something other than what he's warning in Hebrews 6 and people don't ever read that far. But if you know Christ, something as trivial as the suffering we experience here in America wouldn't even tempt you to walk away from your faith in a meaningful way. We all struggle with doubt. We all wonder, but God forbid we would do it. So many Americans think they're suffering. Give me a break. Such entitlement. All these people that just are so entitled and complain about everything are going to have a major wake-up call when that cup of God's wrath is poured out. Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? There is no escape. There's no escape for us in this age if we reject Jesus Christ or the Bible. There is no escape for those in the time of Jacob's trouble if they take the mark. There is no escape. And it says here at the latter part of verse 10, chapter 14, the, the, the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of His indignation, the same cup that Christ drank for us, praise God, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That word tormented there is very strong in the original language. Very strong. It's associated with pain and toil. It's not passive, my friends. It's not just a ghost wandering around in the netherworld. It's associated with pain and toil. 
Those that receive the mark will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Separated from God? On a far end of the galaxy where nobody can see Him? No. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Does that fit your view of God? It's what the Word says. You don't need to... It's pretty plain. doesn't even need an interpretation. Seven times in the Gospels, Jesus defines this word tormented for us. He defines it. He refers to it as weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and wailing. Weeping takes place when people are regretful and wonder, what have I done? Wailing takes place when people are in pain and suffering. And gnashing of teeth takes place when they're angry. You've got weeping over foolishness. You've got physical suffering and pain and toil. And you've got anger and gnashing of teeth at God. There aren't people in hell or in the lake of fire that will be begging God for forgiveness. They'll be sorrowful like Esau, but without repentance. And they'll gnash on their teeth at God and say all kinds of wicked things and curse God for all eternity in pain and in torment, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. There are those out here that pre- will talk about hell. They say they believe hell in their statement of faith. They believe it's eternal. But they forget the fact that it's a place of torment. The hell that people go to in the heart of the earth as they await judgment is described for us in Luke 16. And the rich man was tormented in that flame. It says, so much so that he was begging for a chance to go back and warn his father and his brothers. But there was no chance. Tormented with what? Fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone appears throughout the Scriptures. We're given types of this hellfire here on earth in history. The Bible tells us in Genesis and Jesus affirms that fire and brimstone, the fire of hell, came down from heaven and devoured Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. Devoured them. And then the prophet Jude, I mean, Jude and Peter tells us that this judgment of hellfire upon Sodom and Gomorrah was an example to us that live after of what God's attitude is about going after strange flesh and the type of fornication in which those people were involved. The hellfire is an example. The hellfire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah should be an example to tell us what God thinks about sodomy and homosexuality and homosexual marriage and trannies and binary genders and all this garbage where people take the plain truth of God's created order and said... I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to be like God myself. Hellfire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah ought to be an example, but nobody listens. Hellfire's coming. Peter says in his example, but nobody listens. And then they want to say the sin of Sodom was a lack of hospitality. Sodom and Gomorrah, in Exodus, the second plague, when the hell fell down from heaven. It was mingled with fire. Mingled with the fire of hell that fell upon Egypt, a great persecutor of God's people. 
Turn to Psalm 11. Psalm 11 will shake up your view of God if it's been neutered by experience and the spirit of the age. This is the God of the Bible. Psalm 11, 5 and 6. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. God hates the wicked and He hates those that love violence. Doesn't need an interpretation. It's pretty plain. On the wicked, He shall rain snares, fire and brimstone and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. Fire and brimstone is a portion of the cup of God's wicked indig- God's indignation upon the wicked. There's hail that falls, great hail in the, in the tribulation. We'll read about that later. Um, that's mixed with fire. Fire and brimstone. We see this throughout the Scriptures. Ezekiel 38, 22, when we get into that prophecy in the latter years, Gog and Magog, in those nations that come in and invade the land of Israel. And God does a mighty work and turns those nations back and destroys them. And as a result of that, Israel prospers. I believe those things will transpire before the time of Jacob's trouble. And it will give rise to the treaty that Antichrist will sign. But God will enter in and overthrow those nations. I believe it will involve Muslim nations. And He does it by raining fire and brimstone down from heaven. God intervenes on Israel's behalf. He did that in 1967 in an amazing way. He'll do it again in a way far more amazing than that. And it involves fire and brimstone from heaven. We saw in Revelation 9, the sixth trumpet judgment, the infernal destruction. The fallen angels are unleashed upon this world after the demons have been unleashed, those locust creatures. They aren't tanks and battle droids. They're exactly what's said there. They're infernal from hell. Hell is unleashed on earth. That infernal destruction, those angels underneath the river Euphrates, those fallen angels that send in the days prior to the flood are unleashed and they bring the armies of hell with them, 200,000, 200 million men unleashed, hell on earth, fire and brimstone out of their mouths. And by this judgment, a third of the world population is destroyed. That's after a fourth has been destroyed at the fourth seal. So by the time of the sixth trumpet judgment, that's not even the seven vile judgments yet. A half of the world's population has been destroyed. And a big part of that is fire and brimstone. Revelation 19.20 The lake of fire burning with brimstone. Both the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into that lake. You see, hell in the heart of the earth is a county jail. And when the lake of fire The eternal penitentiary is open. Death and hell are cast into it. Just like the tabernacle here on earth was an earthly representation type of a heavenly tabernacle. Everything was shown to Moses was the pattern in the heavens that he was to make it according to. Revelation 20 verse 10, the devil is cast into the lake. This is a thousand years after the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast alive Men are cast alive into the lake of fire. A thousand years later, the devil is cast in there 
And it's talked about the devil is cast into the lake where the Antichrist and the false prophet are. They're still there a thousand years later. They haven't burned up. They're still there. And they shall be tormented. The devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet shall be tormented forever and ever. The verb there in Greek is plural. It's not just the devil's cast in there with the Antichrist and the false prophet and shall be tormented, just him. It's all three of them because it's a plural verb. It's referring to all of them. There's no annihilation. A thousand years later, two men possessed with Satan are still there, tormented. And Satan goes there too. And then in Revelation 21.8, the wicked are judged. Death and hell are judged. And they're cast into the lake of fire. Fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone is a part of God's judgment. Fire has a purifying element. And the fire of hell has been sent to earth before to warn us. But we're not listening. And that fire will come again. And it will ultimately be the abode of the wicked. Of the devil of the Antichrist, of the false Messiah, and all those Jew and Gentile who have rejected God's truth. It says here in Revelation 14, and I'm probably going to try to wrap this up, that this tormenting will be in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Eternal separation from God? Is that even correct language we should use when we talk about the gospel. Separation is if God sticks us in a far corner of the universe and we're forgotten about. No. The torment, the offering of the wicked in hell is a visible reminder for all of eternity. It's in the presence of the holy angels and of the Christ. Just as Christ was hung up as a curse and made a public shame for all to behold and see, so will the wicked be made a public burning for all to behold. Not just the Lamb. Not just the holy angels. Turn to Isaiah 66. A lot of, a lot of Jewish people I've talked about the, the Scriptures don't believe in hell and they say you can't find hell in the Old Testament. That's kind of interesting because when Jesus preaches on hell in Mark chapter 9, He quotes a passage in Isaiah 66 three different times. Isaiah 66 verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before Me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. So Israel's seed and its name will remain even into the new heavens and the new earth. It will never die. God promises to preserve Israel and its seed. It will never go away. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, this is in the new heavens and the new earth, this is after the millennium, shall all flesh come to worship before Me, saith the Lord. So people will come to worship before the Lord for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And when they come to the city of the King to worship the Lord, what will they see? and be reminded of eternally. And they shall go forth. That means they'll come to worship the Lord and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against Me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. And they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. 
a reminder to all flesh for all of eternity of God's righteousness and His righteous indignation upon sin that will be seen from afar as men come up to worship the Lord. Now that might not fit your definition of hell. I don't know exactly what that looks like. But I think about memorials that we see to memorialize not good things, but evil things. If you go to Yad Vashem, the, 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 the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem today, there's a room you can go into where the names of the concentration camps are printed on the floor, and it's a place where people come and make speeches. I imagine the president will be speaking there, possibly on his trip to Israel that's coming up here soon. But there's an eternal flame in the middle of that uh, floor that is burning always. And that burning is a reminder to all who come in there of the fires of the ovens that burn to ashes six million Jews. It's a reminder of an evil thing. That's the sense in which we see the burning of hell here, an eternal flame, to remind us of God's judgment upon witness. So I'm not sure eternal separation, separation from fellowship with God would be correct. But in terms of hell as if it's a hiding place where you're forgotten about and you fall out of existence, no. Hell is a place of, you're put on, you're put on uh, display for all of eternity, just like Christ was put on display. And it's a reminder to the saints about God's holiness for all eternity as they come up to worship Him in the new heavens and the new earth. That just is what it is. We shouldn't want to sweep that under the rug because we know people that were in our family or friends that are either in hell or headed there. It ought to motivate us. Jesus quotes this phrase, the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched three times in Mark 9. He's not making up a new doctrine. He is quoting the Old Testament. Hell is very clear here in Isaiah 66. The eternal lake of fire is Isaiah 66 when the ground opened up and swallowed up Korah and the rebels. They went to hell alive. God said, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to open up the ground and everything they have is going to go right into the pit, right into hell, the holding cell. Isaiah 66 is the lake of fire. It wouldn't have been a new thing if the ground opened up and they just went down in there. People fall into cracks and crevices all the time and never come out. But those are people that went alive straight to hell. I like to point to that scripture in the Torah when I share the gospel with Jewish people. These that drink of this cup will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment, not the smoke of their burning, not the smoke from dead bodies, but the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of His name. So here again we have the receiving of the mark tied to an act of worship. And what is appointed for these? An eternal torment without rest. This verse in Revelation 14.11 is a very clear declaration 
of the eternal nature of the lake of fire and of God's damnation upon the wicked. It is eternal. Annihilationalism that's taught by many groups is false doctrine. And they often take verses that are obscure and ignore something. Is there any doubt that this is eternal? Torment is eternal. No rest. If you're just annihilated out of God's presence because you think that's what His character would require Him to do, there's rest in that. If it really is true that there's no God, if it really is true that when we die, we die and there's nothing left, why don't we all just follow the example of Jim Jones and put ourselves out of our misery right now? We won't know any different five minutes from now. There won't be any suffering. There won't be any rest. No existence. Nothingness. Won't know any different. Just like when they put you to sleep on an operating table in the hospital. It doesn't matter what they cut off or what they do. You don't know any different in that state until you wake up. But you wouldn't know any different. If you died on the operating table, you wouldn't know any different. So if it's really true, then why not just put ourselves out of our misery? The fact is we know it's not true. A fool says in his heart, there is no God, but he doesn't really believe it. There's a lot of people that profess things they don't really believe. A lot of preachers and a lot of atheists. Foolishness. But hell is eternal. The doctrine of annihilationalism, this idea that God cast people into hell and then it kills them and destroys them and they're annihilated. The Seventh-day Adventists teach this. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach this. Some in the Church of England, Armstrongism teaches this. Christian science, Mormons believe this. There's there's some so-called hipster evangelicals today that are teaching this nonsense. Preachers that will profess hell, their statement of faith on their website will say it, an eternal hell, but they won't talk about it, are no different than those that teach annihilationalism or deny hell altogether. A statement of faith on a website don't mean jack squat. That's used as a deceiving thing more than anything else. Yes, we should be state very clearly what we believe, but if a statement of faith on a website like what was on Rick Warren's website with Saddleback doesn't reflect what he preaches, then the statement of faith is put there to deceive you. What comes out of the preacher's mouth ought to regularly reflect what his statement of faith is. If it doesn't, it's a deceitful thing. Well, look at their statement of faith. He says they believe in this and he says they believe in that. He must be a good guy. And then we, then we drink that Kool-Aid and we're deceived. Apostasy begins when pastors and teachers profess what they don't really believe and therefore avoid it beyond a statement of faith. Those who deny the eternality of hell and avoid the topic are those that are headed to hell, in my opinion. Those that deny its eternality and want to avoid it, avoid it because that's where they're going. Those that want to remodel hell, like I said earlier, 
They want to fit it with air conditioning and couches and TVs and ceiling fans like our prisons today are the ones that are preparing to move in. But they'll find there are no resources. There are no funds like our tax dollars that are stolen from us to outfit the prisons. I was watching a documentary on a prison the other day and they were just whining and moaning about how crowded they were and these poor inmates have to sit in this big gym and they've got their bunk beds and they all have to be in there together. My, their loungings in that gym looked way better than most of the people that live in third world countries. And we're, oh, it's just so terrible. People don't have a clue what's coming. You can't remodel hell. There is an eternal hell. And there is an eternal burning and an eternal torment that is a reminder for all eternity to the righteous that God is righteous. And His sin is real. And that burning that we see for all eternity, perhaps from a distance, will remind us that Christ drank the cup for us and therefore we can go up to worship the Lord from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another in a new heaven and a new earth. In verse 11 of Revelation 14, eternal hell is very, very clear. I want to talk more about that next time I'll stop today. I want to talk a little bit about the eternality of hell that we see in some other places. Uh, talk a little bit about um, uh, the false teaching of annihilationalism. And then... Um, we're going to get into the third victory snapshot, which is in verse 13. It's a snapshot of rest. And I want to talk about how even before war is over, we've still got God's vile judgments. We still, we still have Armageddon to come. But yet, the people are, that, are, that still are alive at this point are told, go ahead and die. Don't even try to stop it anymore. Come have rest. You know, people can have rest and victory before the victory is actually complete. The newspaper headlines that appeared announcing victory and rest for the United States in World War II were announced before the victory was complete. So we see this happening here, and I want to talk a little bit about that, some interesting facts you might not know about World War II and the American Civil War that highlights what is promised in verse 13. And then uh, we'll get into the fourth snapshot of victory, which is a shot of reaping. Uh, when we think of reaping in World War II, there's a very famous photo that shows the mushroom cloud above Hiroshima. Reaping. A day of reckoning. So, I hope that was a blessing to you. We need to be those that are willing to preach upon hell and not make excuses for people where God doesn't make excuses. Instead, we ought to love them enough to tell them the truth. Love them enough to speak out the truth. And if they get angry with us, we love them enough to keep telling them the truth. 